Chapter Twenty Four of the Magnificent Ambersons. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Magnificent Ambersons by Booth Tarkington. Chapter Twenty Four. Breakfast was brought to him in his room as usual, but he did not make his normal healthy raid upon the dainty tray. The food remained untouched, and he sustained himself upon coffee, four cups of it, which left nothing of value inside the glistening little percolator. During this process he heard his mother being summoned to the telephone in the hall not far from his door, and then her voice responding, "'Yes? Oh, it's you!' "'Indeed I should.' "'Of course.' Then I'll expect you about three. Yes, good-bye till then. A few minutes later he heard her speaking to someone beneath his window, and, looking out, saw her directing the removal of plants from a small garden-bed to the Major's conservatory for the winter. There was an air of briskness about her. As she turned away to go into the house, she laughed gaily with the Major's gardener over something he said, and this unconcerned cheerfulness of her was terrible to her son. He went to his desk, and, searching the jumbled contents of a drawer, brought forth a large unframed photograph of his father, upon which he gazed long and piteously, till at last hot tears stood in his eyes. It was strange how the inconsequent fate of Wilbur seemed to increase in high significance during this belated interview between father and son, and how it seemed to take on a reproachful nobility. And yet, under the circumstances, nothing could have been more natural than that George, having paid but the slightest attention to his father in life, should begin to deify him now that he was dead. "'Poor, poor father,' the son whispered brokenly. "'Poor man, I'm glad you didn't know.' He wrapped the picture in a sheet of newspaper, put it under his arm, and, leaving the house hurriedly and stealthily, went downtown to the shop of a silversmith, where he spent sixty dollars on a resplendently festooned silver frame for the picture. Having lunched upon more coffee, he returned to the house at two o'clock, carrying the framed photograph with him, and placing it upon the centre table in the library, the room most used by Isabel and Fanny and himself. Then he went to a front window of the long reception room, and sat looking out through the lace curtains. The house was quiet, though once or twice he heard his mother and Fanny moving about upstairs, and a ripple of song in the voice of Isabel, a fragment from the romantic ballad of Lord Bateman. Lord Bateman was a noble lord, a noble lord of high degree, and he sailed west and he sailed east, far countries for to see. The words became indistinct, the air was hummed absently, the humming shifted to a whistle, then drifted out of hearing, and the place was still again. George looked often at his watch, but his vigil did not last an hour. At ten minutes of three, peering through the curtain, he saw an automobile stop in front of the house, and Eugene Morgan jump lightly down from it. The car was of a new pattern, low and long, with an ample seat in the tonneau, facing forward, and a professional driver sat at the wheel, a strange figure in leather, goggled out of all personality, and seemingly part of the mechanism. Eugene himself, as he came up the cement path to the house, was a figure of the new era, which was in time to be so disastrous to stiff hats and skirted coats, and his appearance afforded a debonair contrast to that of the queer-looking duck capering at the Amberson Ball in an old dress-coat, and next day chugging up National Avenue through the snow in his nightmare of a sewing-machine. Eugene, this afternoon, was richly in the new outdoor mode. His motoring coat was soft grey fur, his cap and gloves were of grey suede, 
and though Lucy's hand may have shown itself in the selection of these high garnitures, he wore them easily, even with a becoming hint of jauntiness. Some change might be seen in his face, too, for a successful man is seldom to be mistaken, especially if his temper be genial. Eugene had begun to look like a millionaire. But above everything else, what was most evident about him, as he came up the path, was his confidence in the happiness promised by his present errand. The anticipation in his eyes could have been read by a stranger. His look at the door of Isabel's house was the look of a man who was quite certain that the next moment will reveal something ineffably charming, inexpressibly dear. When the bell rang, George waited at the entrance of the reception-room until a housemaid came through the hall on her way to answer the summons. "'You needn't mind, Mary,' he told her. "'I'll see who it is and what they want. Probably it's only a peddler.' "'Thank you, sir, Mr. George,' said Mary, and returned to the rear of the house. George went slowly to the front door and halted, regarding the misty silhouette of the collar upon the ornamental frosted glass. After a minute of waiting, this silhouette changed outline so that an arm could be distinguished, an arm outstretched toward the bell as if the gentleman outside doubted whether or not it had sounded, and were minded to try again. But before the gesture was completed, George abruptly threw open the door and stepped squarely upon the middle of the threshold. A slight change shadowed the face of Eugene. His look of happy anticipation gave way to something formal and polite. "'How do you do, George?' he said. "'Mrs. Minifer expects to go driving with me, I believe, if you'll be so kind as to send her word that I'm here.' George made not the slightest movement. "'No,' he said." Eugene was incredulous, even when his second glance revealed how hot of eye was the haggard young man before him. I, "'I beg your pardon. I said—' "'I heard you,' said George. "'You said you had an engagement with my mother, and I told you—no.' Eugene gave him a steady look, and then he asked quietly, "'What is the—the the difficulty?' George kept his own voice quiet enough, but that did not mitigate the vibrant fury of it. "'My mother will have no interest in knowing that you came for her to-day,' he said, "'or any other day.' Eugene continued to look at him with a scrutiny in which began to gleam a profound anger, none the less powerful because it was so quiet. "'I'm afraid I do not understand you.' "'I doubt if I could make it much plainer,' George said, raising his voice slightly. "'But I'll try. You're not wanted in this house, Mr. Morgan, now or at any other time. Perhaps you'll understand this.' and with the last word he closed the door in Eugene's face. Then, not moving away, he stood just inside the door, and noted that the misty silhouette remained upon the frosted glass for several moments, as if the forbidden gentleman debated in his mind what course to pursue. Let him ring again, George thought grimly, or try the side door, or the kitchen. But Eugene made no further attempt. The silhouette disappeared, Footsteps could be heard withdrawing across the floor of the veranda, and George, returning to the window in the reception room, was rewarded by the sight of an automobile manufacturer in baffled retreat, with all his wooing furs and fineries mocking him. Eugene got into his car slowly, not looking back at the house which had just taught him such a lesson, and it was easily visible, even from a window seventy feet distant, that he was not the same light suitor who had jumped so gallantly from the car a few minutes earlier. Observing the heaviness of his movements as he climbed into the tonneau, George indulged in a sickish throat-rumble which bore a distant cousinship to mirth. The car was quicker than its owner. It shot away as soon as he had sunk into his seat. 
and George, having watched its impetuous disappearance from his field of vision, ceased to haunt the window. He went to the library, and seating himself beside the table, whereon he had placed the photograph of his father, picked up a book, and pretended to be engaged in reading it. Presently Isabel's buoyant step was heard descending the stair, and her low, sweet whistling, renewing the air of Lord Bateman. She came into the library, still whistling, thoughtfully, a fur coat over her arm, ready to put on, and two veils round her small black hat, her right hand engaged in buttoning the glove upon her left. And, as the large room contained too many pieces of heavy furniture, and the inside shutters excluded most of the light of day, she did not at once perceive George's presence. Instead, she went to the bay window at the end of the room, which afforded a view of the street, and glanced out, expectantly, then bent her attention upon her glove. After that, looked out toward the street again, ceased to whistle, and turned toward the interior of the room. "'Why, Georgie!' She came, leaned over from behind him, and there was a faint, exquisite odor, as from distant apple-blossoms, as she kissed his cheek. "'Dear, I waited lunch almost an hour for you, but you didn't come. Did you lunch out somewhere?' "'Yes.' He did not look up from the book. "'Did you have plenty to eat?' "'Yes.' "'Are you sure? Wouldn't you like to have Maggie get you something now in the dining-room? Or they could bring it to you here, if you think it would be cozier. Shan't I?' "'No.' A tinkling bell was audible, and she moved to the doorway into the hall. "'I'm going out driving, dear. I—' She interrupted herself to address the housemaid who was passing through the hall. "'I think it's Mr. Morgan, Mary. Tell him I'll be there at once.' "'Yes, ma'am.' Mary returned. "'Twas a peddler, ma'am.' "'Another one,' Isabel said, surprised. "'I thought you said it was a peddler when the bell rang a little while ago.' "'Mr. George said it was, ma'am. He went to the door,' Mary informed her, disappearing. "'There seemed to be a great many of them,' Isabel mused. "'What did yours want to sell, George?' He didn't say. "'You must have cut him off short,' she laughed. And then, still standing in the doorway, she noticed the big silver frame upon the table beside him. "'Gracious, Georgie!' she exclaimed. "'You have been investing.' and as she came across the room for a closer view, "'Is it—is it Lucy?' she asked, half timidly, half archly. But the next instant she saw whose likeness was thus set forth in elegiac splendor, and she was silent except for a long, just audible, "'Oh!' He neither looked up nor moved. "'That was nice of you, Georgie,' she said, in a low voice, presently. "'I ought to have had it framed myself when I gave it to you.' He said nothing, and, standing beside him, she put her hand gently upon his shoulder, then as gently withdrew it, and went out of the room. But she did not go upstairs. He heard the faint rustle of her dress in the hall, and then the sound of her footsteps in the reception-room. After a time silence succeeded even those slight tokens of her presence, whereupon George rose and went warily into the hall, taking care to make no noise and he obtained an oblique view of her through the open double doors of the reception-room. She was sitting in the chair which he had occupied so long, and she was looking out of the window expectantly, a little troubled. He went back to the library, waited an interminable half-hour, then returned noiselessly to the same position in the hall where he could see her. She was still sitting patiently by the window. Waiting for that man, was she? Well, it might be a long wait and the grim George silently ascended the stairs to his own room, and began to pace his suffering floor. End of chapter 24